You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. So if you're following along at home with the podcast, we've already read through Genesis chapter 32. Encourage you to do that before listening to the podcast today so that you're fully up to speed with um, where we're at in the text. But going back to last week or the last couple of weeks, we saw uh, Jacob and some of the insecurities that came out in his relationships with uh, both Leah and Rachel and how that led to um, a lot of fighting and turmoil regarding the offspring of both of these women. Um, we talked a lot about the fact that as believers, we don't find satisfaction in human relationships, that ultimately Christ is the only thing that can satisfy us. Um, and then last week, uh, we saw how we as Christians don't have to look for our God in times of trouble, our summary sentence. A Christian should find comfort in knowing that our God is regularly looking after believers, ready to respond to injustice and danger with provision and protection, while other gods oftentimes cannot be found when they are most needed. We talked about uh, Jacob going to um, his wives and saying that it's time for us to leave, that my relationship with Laban has soured. He is no longer friendly towards me. God has continued to bless me and protect me, and now that has caused tension between me and Laban. And so we saw how uh, Jacob over and over again highlights the fact that it's God who's providing for him, God who's taking care of him, uh, God who has ultimately set his favor upon him. Uh, We see Jacob and his family kind of leave at an opportune time where Laban is off shearing sheep and eventually Laban catches up and confronts. But before he confronts, God confronts Laban and prohibits him from doing anything that would steer Jacob to come back to uh, his home. Um, And so then we see the search for the gods. Uh, Ultimately, uh, Jacob is shown to be the the man of character at this point. Um, We see God's guidance in Jacob's life uh, in that chapter, chapter 31. Um, And then we concluded last week with the ideas that, one, we can be encouraged that we serve a God who remains with us through affliction and works for our good. Um, that, that God was intervening even in ways that Jacob maybe wasn't prepared for or didn't even understand. He saw some ways that God was protecting him and providing for him. And then God comes to Laban uh, supernaturally the night before that he's going to confront Jacob and intervenes, something that Jacob wasn't aware of until Laban uh, clues him into that. Secondly, we said that we should remain faithful, that anything we give our affection to other than Christ can flee from us, it can hide from us, etc., meaning that We already serve a God who ultimately is with us at all times, provides for us and satisfies us to give our affection to anything else, to any human relationship or to anything this world has to offer, guarantees that at some point we're going to be failed by that object. Um, And Christ fulfills the things that we desire in ways that nothing else can. And that brings us to chapter 32. Uh, The title of today's message, The One For Us Is Greater Than Those Against Us. Um, Our summary sentence for today that we're going to unpack. While believers will oftentimes face uncertainty and danger, we take comfort in knowing that the God who is for us offers the greatest protection and provision possible. So while believers will oftentimes face uncertainty and danger, we take comfort in knowing that the God who is for us offers the greatest protection and provision possible. For our kids, God can protect us from our greatest fears. Hopefully you picked up on the fact as we read through chapter 32 today that that fear really uh, is a a dominant theme in this chapter, at least from Jacob's perspective. There's a lot of fear attached to him continuing to advance back to his homeland. We see some fear in him trying to escape from Laban, but ultimately when Laban catches up with him, what's the attitude that we see from Jacob in that conversation with Laban? It's one of confidence, right? Like he's very bold. Uh, he's very descriptive in how Laban has wronged him and how God has interceded for him. Uh, there, there's a lot of confidence that really comes out in Jacob's uh, conversation with Laban, right? Like he, he basically challenges Laban, find stuff that I've stole from you. We'll kill whoever took from you. A lot of confidence exuding from Jacob's interaction with Laban. And we're to expect to believe that chapter 32 follows right after chapter 31, and we see the confidence really wane, right? Like we see Jacob 
operating out of fear. There's a lot of concern about how Esau's going to respond to his coming home. <coughs> He's motivated out of concern and fear for the outcome of what will happen to his family, to his children. As a way of introduction, um, some things I thought would be worth pointing out. Jacob has every reason to believe that Esau is still hostile at this point. What was supposed to be the indicator to Jacob that it was safe to come home and that Esau was no longer angry with him? His mother was supposed to send word, right? She says, go to Laban. Um, when, when it's calmed down, when things have settled, I'll send word to you and you can come back home. And then they disguised it with the idea that he was going to go find a wife. And then 20 years goes by. And I don't think anybody ever anticipated Jacob being gone for 20 years. And potentially from Jacob's perspective, it was, I'm going to stay here until I hear word that Esau's no longer angry. And, and we have no indication from the text that that word ever came. And it seems that Jacob certainly believes that he's still hostile uh, based on how he approaches the idea of coming back to Esau. Um, so Jacob has every reason to believe that Esau is still hostile. It's also important, and I think one of the groups was talking about this, uh, the encounter with Esau was not mandated at this point. This, this doesn't have to be an encounter that happens right now. Based on the location of where Jacob's coming and where he's trying to go, he doesn't have to cross paths with Esau here. Um, and the text doesn't tell us why, um, but most commentators believe that this is more a heart necessity versus a geographical necessity. That for Jacob to really embrace his role as, as God's uh, patriarch now of this family that God has chosen, it's going to necessitate him reconciling and correcting previous wrongs. Um, and so this is a heart necessity that he's going to come and reconcile with Esau and make things right with Esau because this is an enemy created by Jacob. Right? Like Laban creates the hostility between the two of them. Laban's the one that's in the wrong. Laban's the one that is uh, manipulating the situation and deceiving Jacob and giving them wrong daughter to marry and trying to take the flocks back for himself. Esau is an enemy that Jacob created, right? Jacob's the one that's in the wrong in that situation, which is ultimately, I think, where the fear comes from. Much of, much of Jacob's fear in this chapter is motivated by the fact that he is wrong in this situation. So he's confident with Laban because he was right, but I think a lot of the reason that he succumbs to the fear in this chapter is because he's in the wrong, right? Like it's easy for us to be confident when we know that we're doing the right thing and, and we've been responding appropriately in a situation and somebody else is in the wrong. But when we're in the wrong, oftentimes it brings guilt and in this type of situation, potential fear because of what the ramifications may be. So I think it's harder for Jacob in this chapter to rely upon God's promises and God's presence because there's guilt over what he's done to his brother. And he recognizes that I think that Esau would be very justified from a worldly standpoint for wanting to kill him. And so I think that's hard for Jacob to reconcile in this chapter. He's, he can be angry with Laban. He can confront Laban. He can say, Laban, check out all my stuff. You'll find that I'm innocent and be very confident in God's protection. When it comes to Esau, I think there's this, this, this cloud kind of hovering over the situation. I, I was in the wrong with Esau. He has every right to be angry. What is his response going to be 20 years later? There's an encouraging passage in Romans chapter 8. I think that reminds us of this truth that we serve a God who, no matter what danger or uncertainty we face, we can certainly trust in his provision and protection. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the hope for us as believers today is that uh, God is able to offer the greatest protection and provision possible in the face of any fear that we encounter. In your notes, first of all, believers can be comforted by the invisible presence of God. Believers can be comforted by the invisible presence of God. So we're saying that fear is a dominant theme in this chapter. Jacob's fear specifically about how Esau is going to interact with him. In our discussion groups this morning, uh, you were to highlight reasons that Jacob should not have feared and maybe some of the reasons that he did fear. One of the major reasons that he fears is that he's in the wrong. He's the one that is guilty. So he has some reason to be concerned. But one of the major reasons that he has for not being fearful is the presence of God in his life. And we've been talking about this since we were in uh, the story of Isaac, that God promises a special presence with his children. For our kids, God is always with us, even though we cannot see him. This chapter begins with very little detail, but a reference that's real similar to what we saw Jacob leaving the promised land with, right? He has the encounter with God's messengers, God's angels, and he sees the latter vision, and he sees God's presence, and he receives promises from God. As he comes back into the promised land, Jacob has a similar encounter. We're not given the, the, uh, the amount of detail here as we are when he encounters them at Bethel, but it says in Genesis 32, verse 1, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. What we have here is God choosing to reveal his invisible presence to Jacob. The angel's presence here is meant to be a declaration to Jacob that the way home will be cleared for him, right? We know that God has commanded him to come home, right? This is part of God's plan for him. And I think before he ever has to even think about Esau, right? We don't have any indication up to this point that he's worried about Esau. He's been giving his attention to escape in Laban. Now, before he really starts to dedicate attention to the fear that he has about Esau, God shows up and unveils his eyes to see the spiritual realm around him. And God does this at times in scripture, right? It's very infrequent, Right? We don't have a lot of cases where God pulls back the, the curtains and allows people to see both the spiritual and the physical at the same time. But Jacob gets that benefit here. Jacob gets that benefit. He gets to see the spiritual forces at work around him. And it's meant to be an encouragement. It's meant to, to let him know that the way home is cleared. He says, this is God's camp. It's a, it's a military type uh, wordage here that indicates that these guys are ready to fight for me. These guys are ready to clear the way for me if necessary. In my notes, I put that believers can be encouraged that while not revealed, God's presence still remains, right? I don't know if anybody in here uh, would claim that God has ever pulled back the curtains to where they've been able to see angelic forces around them at work, Um I know some people would claim that happens today. Maybe, maybe not. Like, I'll always be a little skeptical of that, but um, I certainly believe that there's spiritual forces at work around us, so I can't discount the fact that God may at times still pull that curtain back and allow people to see it. Uh, I would think that the norm, the norm that we see in Scripture is that God does what? He calls us to trust that that is happening even when we can't see it, right? Like that's the, that's the essence of faith. It's that we believe in things not yet seen, right? We believe that one day it will be visible, that Jesus will come with his angelic forces and they will come to this earth and set all things right. And we believe that we will see that happening. Um, but in, in the meantime, faith is believing things not yet seen. And so I think the, the normal pattern for God's people is that we're called to trust that there are spiritual forces at work around us and there are spiritual forces put in place for our protection and our provision. Let's look at a couple of passages. And let me get y'all, um, since we're a smaller crowd today, we can, we can get some interaction going. Who wants to look up uh, Psalm 34-7 for us and just read that? Psalm 34-7, would somebody want to do that for me? All right, Tom. And then Psalm 91-11 through 12, Maggie. 
And then, Tyson, if you want to look up Hebrews 1.14. As they're doing that, more often than not, we are called to trust that God is with us versus being able to see him with us. Okay, it'd be great, and I, and I think we'd all have our faith greatly increased uh, if we could just constantly see the spiritual work going on around us, right? If we could always see uh, temptation from spiritual forces coming well before it gets to us, and if we could always see angels that are there ready to minister to us, we'd certainly have a lot more confidence maybe in, in, in what God's called us to do. Now, I'd also argue that it certainly doesn't guarantee it, right? Because Jacob does get to see it, and then he immediately re- resorts back to a fearful approach to the situation. So even being able to see angelic forces doesn't guarantee that our trust will be properly placed in what God is doing around us. Um, but I would think that at times it would certainly help to be able to see it during times of doubt. Uh, Psalm 34, 7. Okay. I would say this is probably more of a reference to Christ than angels, but the picture there, the wordage there is very similar to what we have here. The idea of of God camping around us and protecting and guarding those that fear him. Uh, Psalm 91, 11 through 12. Okay, this is God commanding his angels to work for us. We sang about this today in... Um, the song dwell. You command your angels to guard me, right? Like that. That's a, that's a promise in scripture. That's 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 God giving us insight into how He works, and He is telling us as His children, I command my created heavenly beings to minister to you and to guard you and to protect you. Uh, Hebrews one fourteen. All right, this is in reference to Jesus being better than angels, but the reference to the purpose of angels is that they are created and used by God to serve as ministering spirits to those that inherit salvation, right? We're told that in Scripture. Most of us will never see that actually happening around us. Remember, we said last week that God steps in and intervenes and stops Laban from doing what he wants to do. And we get special insight that, that, that God did that. But I also talked about the fact that I think God does that all the time and we don't get insight into it. That God protects us from things and we never know that he protected us from it. Had Laban not showed up and gone through with trying to find his false gods, if he had just gone home after God told him that, Jacob would have never known that God stepped in and prohibited Laban from doing what he wanted to do. I think God protects us all the time and we don't even know to thank him for it because we're not even aware that he's done it. Here in this passage, we are reminded that God's presence is always going on around us, that his angelic forces are always encamped around us as his children. And Jacob gets a glimpse of that. Why? If for no other reason, because it should encourage us today that these verses that we've read about can be verified, right? It's one thing for us to just read and for God to say, oh, I send angels to take care of you and, and, and they encamp around you and they guard those that fear me. But if we had no evidence that that ever happened, it'd be kind of a, and I hope that's true, right? Like, I, I've, I've, I hope it's true. God says it. I want to believe it. But I've, I've, never, I've never had anybody, anybody say that that's true. But we have evidence in Scripture where people did see these things happening. They were uh, made privy to that information. They were allowed to see it. And Jacob, this passage, while it's short, I think it's worth making a, a major point in this, in this sermon is that we should be comforted by the fact that God's invisible presence is always working around us, right? Like, and that's, that's God, that's his angels, that, that encompasses all of, his, uh, all of his forces, that they are at work around us even though we cannot see them. The implication of that is if we aren't careful, we lose sight of the spiritual when faced with the physical. So I'm telling you, you should be comforted this morning that when we leave here today, we leave with God's presence, oftentimes seen through the working of angels, we leave with that presence upon our life if we're truly a believer. But most of us aren't careful, and most of us lose sight of that, and most of us won't think about that until I bring it up in another sermon. 
Most of us, it won't register this week that God's presence is right there with us. Like sometimes we think about God's in heaven and, and Jesus is at his right hand and those things are true. And, but we, what we create such a distance between where he's at and where we are and we don't see his active presence in our daily lives. And when we lose sight of the spiritual, we grow fearful at the physical because that's what's happening here with Jacob. Jacob gets a glimpse of this and he's excited. He said, this is God's camp. And there's a plural aspect to the naming of this place, Mahana name. It means two camps. And so the picture here is that Jacob says, okay, I've got my people, but we're not alone. There's a whole separate camp here with us. And this is great. Like the chapter starts off great. You're thinking, Jacob, you get it. There's the physical and the spiritual working together. How could you be afraid of what's going to happen before you? You've got all this blessing that God has given to you that verifies that he's working in your life. And he's given you a glimpse of the spiritual, showing you that you're an object of his special favor. There's nothing to be afraid of. And he loses sight of it. He loses sight of the spiritual when the physical confronts him. It says in verse 3, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. All right, so Jacob's got this heart condition thing going on where he realizes I've got to make things right with my brother. Let's go initiate contact with him. Tells his servants, make sure he's aware that I am fully blessed by God. Probably two reasons for that. One, I don't want Esau to think I'm coming home to claim anything that he's got. Because Jacob would have had rightful claim to some of that potentially. He wants Esau to know, God's been very good to me. I'm not here to claim anything from you. Secondly, if I need to give you anything, I've got a reservoir to make amends for what I've done to you. I think there's two possible reasons for why he wants to stress what he owns. One, I don't need your stuff. And two, if you want my stuff, you can have it. Whatever it's going to take to make things right between me and you. Um, some commentators even speculate as he goes on and really divvies out over 500 animals to give to Esau that there's some approach here to where Jacob's almost uh, surrendering what's rightfully his back to Esau. The idea of calling him Lord and I'm your servant, that's a flip-flop of what God has ordained to be, that the younger will uh, will rule over the older. Uh, Jacob uh, received that blessing from Isaac. Isaac communicated that to Esau when Esau asked for a different blessing, and he said, really, I can't do anything. You're going to be subjected to your brother. Um, and so there's, there's really an outworking of fear here by Jacob. I mean, he's really ready to, to do whatever necessary, even if it means giving back some things that are rightfully his to atone with Esau. He loses sight of what he just saw. He loses sight of the fact that God's camp is with him and he gets fearful when the messengers come back. It says in verse six and the six, and the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. There's a word play here that the commentators draw out, the fact that God reveals to him that there's two camps. There's his and there's God's, and they should be working together. Now Jacob grows fearful and splits his camp into two camps. And the tragedy of it is that you learn in chapter 33 that he's really set it up based on how he values the people in his family. Like it's designed to where the servant ladies that he's, that he's had kids with, they would die first if attacked by Esau, and then Leah would die, and then Rachel would be the last to go. So he kind of prioritizes based on the, the tension we've already seen in his relationships with his family. Um, so he divides his camps and is really conceding defeat to some level. He's saying, I fully expect Esau to attack, and I fully expect that there's going to be some losses, and I'm going to try to set myself up to get out with as much as possible. A lot of fear that's motivating him here in his actions. Um, he seeks to appease Esau with plans to pacify him. He forgets the angelic messengers when his messengers return with an ominous report. There's 400 men that are coming. 
Jacob creates two camps willing to concede one for the other rather than remember God's camp being active with him. Esau coming with 400 men certainly sounds like a threat. But to keep in mind, Esau hasn't talked to Jacob in 20 years, right? And we know from chapter 33, for those that are familiar with the story, for those that have maybe read ahead or, or just are familiar with this uh, story in Scripture, Esau's not hostile, right? Esau comes and has missed his brother and wants to reconcile with his brother, isn't looking for anything from his brother. So why does he bring 400 men? Did God change his heart on the way? Maybe. There also may be motivation by Esau to say, I don't know if Jacob's coming to attack me to try to take my stuff, so I'm going to have people in place if Jacob is hostile towards me. But certainly the message that comes back gives Jacob the opportunity to either express faith or fear. It's a test of his faith, and Jacob seemingly yields to the fear aspect here, right? He's seen God's camp. He's acknowledged that the angels are with him. And yet in the face of his brother, who he knows he's wronged, and again, I think, again, it's hard for him to embrace faith here because he sees the guilt of what he's done. He yields to the fear in this situation. But for us today, believers, we should be comforted by the invisible presence of God and not lose sight of that when the physical confronts us. No matter what we face, no matter what situation we're going through, no matter what trial, difficulty, it's easy for us to see the physical and to respond to the physical and to think the physical is all that's going on. This is a story that reminds us that there is a spiritual realm at work behind the scenes, and we should be comforted by that as believers. Secondly, believers can be comforted by remembering the promises of God. This is, um, I think, the longest prayer recorded in the book of Genesis. Um, After Jacob kind of manipulates his camp, tries to set himself up for the most success possible, um, which is probably an indicator that while he's got servants, he doesn't have equal number of servants to this 400 group that Esau's bringing. So he's trying to act on as, as much as he can the wisdom that he has to protect his people. It says in verse 9, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, And now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Long prayer. What are some, what are some key points that we should highlight from this prayer? Let me get some feedback from you. As you read that, as I read that to you, What are some things that jump out to you if we were to say, okay, let's take Jacob's prayer and let's uh, let's adopt some of the principles into our own life? What are some some key prayer principles that we see uh, from this prayer that Jacob offers to God? What are some positives that stand out to you? Things that we can highlight. Okay, yeah, he he draws out the fact in praying to God, he reminds God of the promises that God has made to him, Um, and so. He's, he's becoming, I think, more confident based on remembering the promises himself. Um, but he makes that a point of his prayer to highlight promises that have been made to him. What else? What are some points worth remembering from this prayer? Okay. Yeah, he's, uh, he's reminding God that he's, he's following through as best he knows how. Uh, in, in the instructions that God has given him. He talks about, you're the one that commanded me to return to my country and to my kindred. Yep, he says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. So what that tells me based on comparing the rest of the prayer, he is appealing to God to act based on the fact that God has promised to act, not based on his worthiness to receive God's action. And that's, that's a big difference, right? There, there, there are ways that we come boldly before the throne of God and can appeal to God to do certain things 
when we are motivated by God's promises of his faithfulness and not coming from it as an approach that I deserve this, I warrant this, you owe me, right? There are things that God obligates himself to do. He promises certain things, and I believe we can come boldly before his throne and claim those things, ask for those things, expect those things. If it's done with a motivation where we are expecting those things because God has promised them and not because we deserve them, right? The, the legalistic uh, mindset of religion would believe that because I've been this way for this long, because I've done these things, here's my list. Now, what do I get in return for it, right? Like, it's almost a cashing in system that so oftentimes we fall prey to adapting. It's, it's this Santa Claus mentality of, I've been good, so now give to me what, what, I've, what I'm owed. It goes back to what we talked about earlier in Genesis. Uh, God gifts us. God credits things to us, not because we earn them, but because of his love and his grace. Um, he doesn't owe our account anything. He doesn't owe us wages for working for him, right? If he wants to pay for what we've earned, we certainly don't want to cash that paycheck, right? The wages of sin is death. So, so we deserve God's condemnation and God's wrath if we really want to appeal to what we deserve and what God owes us. So what I love about his prayer is that it's full of God's promises, and yet it's tempered with the idea of, I'm not worthy of these promises. Like, Lest there be any pride in me, I'm going to remind myself by confessing to you, I don't deserve the steadfast love that I'm appealing to. I don't deserve your faithfulness that I'm claiming right now. It's it's not because I've warranted this. It's not because you owe this to me. All right? Believers can be comforted by remembering the promises of God. For our kids, the promises of God are meant to encourage us. And that's what we have here in Jacob's prayer. He expresses a couple of things that I want to highlight for you, and we've mentioned most of these already. First of all, he expresses confidence. It's not confidence, though, based on himself. It's confidence based on the past faithfulness of the one he's praying to. He comes to God in prayer. He uses the same intro in his prayer as God uses at Bethel for how he reveals himself to Jacob. He comes to Jacob, God does in Bethel, and says, "'I'm the God of Abraham.'" I'm the God of Isaac, and then begins to give instructions to Jacob. Jacob now prays back to God and appeals to this same uh, intro that God gave to him at Bethel. He says, I'm praying to you, God of Abraham. I'm praying to you, God of Isaac. I'm praying to you, God, who gave instructions to me. He's coming in confidence because he knows the past faithfulness of the God that he's coming to. God's been faithful to Abraham, called him and provided for him and protected him all those years in wandering through the promised land. He calls Isaac. He calls Isaac when, when, when the, two, uh, the two human beings were incapable of having kids. He calls Isaac into existence and then gives the promises to Isaac and continues to take care of Isaac and provide for Isaac. He gives Isaac offspring when his wife could not have children. So Jacob comes to this God and says, I'm coming to you, God of Abraham and God of Isaac, and now my God. And I think even in our own prayers, our prayers at home, our prayers personally, our prayers with our families, we have every right to appeal to this God of the Old Testament, right? Like it shouldn't, it shouldn't be foreign or uncomfortable for us to pray and say, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, because those are our spiritual forefathers. Let's don't disconnect ourselves too much from this because we're not Jewish for those that aren't of Jewish descent here and think, okay, that was God working with Israel. Right? I believe strongly in the New Testament that we are grafted into this, right? Paul, Paul, Paul communicates that very clearly and very intentionally. And so he is the God of Abraham and he's the God of Isaac and he's the God of Jacob and he's my God now as well. Okay, and so he comes confidently because he's saying, I know who you are. You're the God that's been around for a while now and a God who's been uh, showing himself to be faithful for a long time now. I'm praying to you and I'm relying upon your past faithfulness. I think he's also confident, as Tom mentioned, because he's being obedient And that should certainly give us confidence in our prayers and our spiritual walk. That God is certainly working good for us when we're being obedient to him. Now, I think God works all the time good for us. Remember, we talked about, though, that when we sin 
it necessitates God including our sin and the punishment of our sin into his good purposes. So it still turns out for good, but it's, it's a lot more painful than it probably needs to be. But we can certainly be confident in our Christian walk when we know that we're being obedient to God's revealed will. And we know that we're doing everything that we can to walk in the spirit and to say no to the flesh. We can certainly be confident in our prayer life. And I think that's what comes out here in Jacob. He's praying confidently. You called me to do this and I'm doing it. I'm returning to my country and to my kindred with the expectation that you're going to do good to me. He expresses humility. He admits he doesn't deserve God's gracious provision. He's not coming presuming that, that, that God owes him or that God has to do these things beyond the fact that God has promised to do them, right? Like he hasn't earned the right to claim these things. It's simply because God graciously promised him. He also comes expressing his need. He admits that he needs God to come through for deliverance. So he says, I'm not worthy He says, you know, it's only by your grace that I'm able to cross this Jordan and have two camps because when I left, I had my staff, and that was it. And now I have enough to even divide up into two camps. Verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Even if he believes that God will keep his promise to bring him through, there's still this concern that the offspring that are necessary for your covenant are in jeopardy here if Esau comes and attacks So he's praying for their salvation, not their spiritual salvation, but their physical salvation. Verse 12, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. In this prayer, we see Jacob remembering God's goodness, claiming God's promises and resting on God's character and his covenant. In my notes, I put, we argue our case to God and appeal to his promises not to convince him to act, but to convince ourselves that he will act. That's a big difference, right? All the other gods that Israel would encounter in Canaan when they come into the promised land, because remember, the audience for this Genesis book is the children of Israel coming out of the Exodus. They're going to encounter all kinds of gods and all kinds of people that worship all kinds of weird gods. All of those gods have to be Uh, manipulated to do things, right? Their worship was very manipulative. Let us coerce you into doing what we want you to do. It's different in Christianity. We pray the promises of God, not to remind God, not to wake God up. Remember, Elijah said, you guys have to wake your God up. He might be sleeping or he might be going to the bathroom. Like you gotta go find your God and try to get him to care about what's going on on this mountain right now. But Elijah's belief was that that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was very present on Mount Carmel. He didn't have to be woken up. He didn't have to to get done using the bathroom, right? Like he he was readily available as Elijah called upon him. We don't, we don't come to God and have to remind him of his promises. We don't have to remind him of his plans or his covenant. When we pray the promises of God, we're simply trying to convince ourselves. We're trying, to, we're trying to preach to ourselves that God is going to do something here. We're not trying to convince God to act. It's really a tool for us to convince ourselves that he's going to act. And we can't, we can't take the spiritual high and say, well, I don't have to convince myself. I really believe that God will always do good for me. Jacob just saw angels encamped around him, and now he's scared to death that Esau's going to come and kill him. He certainly needs to preach to himself. He certainly needs to remind himself that God is going to do what he's promised to do. I think that's an important part of uh, of this prayer that we're seeing for Jacob. I think it's an important reminder for how we pray. We pray, and we should do so intentionally to convince ourselves of what is true, that God is faithful, that God is good, and that God keeps his promises. We need to be reminded of that regularly because we are very prone to forget the spiritual in the face of the physical. The implication, the promises of God are meant to motivate our actions. What you'd love to see after this prayer is for Jacob to be fully rested in the fact that God's going to provide for him. But he kind of reverts back to a fear tactic. He says, okay, tell it. And we don't know for sure that the messengers ever made, ever made contact with Esau. But they were meant to just go tell Esau, 
we got a lot of stuff. If you want it, you can have it. We don't know if they just saw him from a distance and said, oh, wow, there's like 400 guys coming with him. Let's get back and just tell Jacob that he's already coming. We don't know. But for whatever case, Jacob says, we're going to send the animals, right? Like, we're going to send the animals. We're not going to take the chance that he'll, that he'll bargain with us once we meet up. He says, we're going to send the animals. And he does it in such a way where it's meant to leave a lasting impression, right? Like, he doesn't send them all at one time. And, and Jacob uh, or the Esau see it and be like, wow, like what a great gift. I guess I'll forgive him. Like it's meant to build. And so he spaces it out so that basically Esau gets overwhelmed with the gifts that Jacob is bringing to him. And, and it's, again, meant to be a, a, a pacification of Esau. And as he's doing this, Jacob is still uncertain to the outcome. Says um, at the end of verse 20, you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Jacob is motivated by fear rather than confidence. Uh, he gives out these animals and spaces them out for dramatic effect. For us as believers today, though, we should be comforted by remembering the promises of God but not just paying lip service to God. It should really translate to how we operate after praying those things to God. It should have a, a, an effect in our life where we really are motivated to live and to respond based on believing those promises. We see kind of a little bit of both in, in Jacob's life here. Number three, believers can be comforted by the ongoing sanctifying work of God. For our kids, God is always working to make us more like him. Believers can be comforted by the ongoing, sanctifying work of God. So going back to that summary sentence, while believers will often face uncertainty and danger, we take comfort in knowing that the God who is for us offers the greatest protection and provision possible. How does he do that? There's an invisible presence around us all the time working for us. There are promises that have been made to us. And there's an ongoing work in us. Right? God starts the work, God finishes the work. That means that God's not done with us yet. And so we take comfort in the uncertainties and the dangers that we face in life, knowing that he's always with us, he's always around us, even when we can't see him, that he's made promises to us and he's a faithful God and he keeps those promises and he's consistently ongoing working in us to make us like him. This is an extremely confusing passage here in, in, in chapter 32. Um, and I have to confess to you that uh, in, in, most of, in much of my studies, very little clarity uh, seems to be understood by the commentators and those that I, that I was reading for additional insight. Um, this is the section where Jacob uh, most likely wrestles with God, most likely wrestles with the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Um, this is God in human form. Uh, anytime we reference God in human form. We understand that to be Jesus. That's far more clear in the New Testament. We see glimpses of it in the Old Testament, perhaps in the form of Melchizedek, uh, most likely in the encounter that Abraham has with the three visitors right before Sodom's destruction that we talked about. Um, we see glimpses of it. We probably see Jesus in some form in the fiery furnace when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are walking around with a fourth one who is like the Son of Man, like the Son of God. Um, there's a lot of things that we don't know about this passage. A couple of them that I wrote down. We don't know the exact identity. We're, we're speculating, but I feel like it's a confident speculation that this is most likely Jesus here. Um, we're not told why the fighting part of this is necessary. Um, I, 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 I can't give you, I'd love to be able to tell you, here's the spiritual significance for why these two wrestle through the night. And it would be speculation at best. And when I went looking with... Uh, into what John Piper's insight for this was, and I searched this on his website. One of the first articles that came up referenced this and basically said, be faithful to preach what we do know from this passage. Your people need real food, not possible food. Um, so we're not going to speculate a whole lot about why they fight because Scripture doesn't tell us. Um, we also don't know why it took so long for this fight to end, right? Like if he's fighting with Jesus, fighting with God himself, why does it last through the night, 
right? Like, why doesn't he touch the thigh a lot sooner and just end this? Why does he touch the thigh even to begin with? Like, like what, what, what's, what's that purpose? Um, why doesn't he reveal his name, right? Like, what's your name? My name's Jacob. What's your name? No, I'm not going to tell you, right? Like, that, that's like, why not? Like, if we really want God to get glory here, why not proclaim and, and remove any confusion about the identity here uh, for this story? These are questions that, that we don't know the answer to. Possible answers, like I said, Jesus, I think maybe the most likely why, uh, or most likely the person that, that we're talking about on the other end of this fight. Um, why does he come and fight? He comes to Abraham because Abraham's a traveler and he comes as a traveler, right? He visits Joshua as a general, right? As Joshua's getting ready to, to go into battle, Joshua gets a glimpse most likely of Jesus pre-incarnate as a general. Jacob has been wrestling with people his whole life, right? He's wrestling in the womb, like serious wrestling, not like, ah, I feel my kids. And it, There seemed to be really some indication that there was some fighting taking place in the womb that there's fighting as they grow up, right? He's fighting with his brother. He's fighting with his dad. He's ripping away the blessing that would have been given to him, but he takes it on his own accord. He spends 20 years fighting with Laban. Um, th- this, is, this is Jacob's language in a sense. Like this is how he, he interacts with people. Um, and so that, that may be a reason why God comes in this form to interact with him as well. Um, you remember that his name is based on contending with Esau in the womb. And he gets a new name here after contending with God. Um, I think as a result of this whole scenario, there's, there's limitation that's, that's communicated to, to Jacob. There's a, a stripping away of his own self-reliance for his plans. Uh, why does God not reveal his name here? Or why doesn't God remove the, the confusion about the identity? I think what you have in the Old Testament, every time we look back and say, this is probably Jesus, when it's originally happening, I think the, the whole purpose of the veiled, mysterious figure is to point towards an anticipation of the Messiah, right? Like, if we're to, like, you, it wouldn't make sense for Jesus to say, I'm Jesus here. We'd have no context for what that even meant. Like, who is Jesus, right? He hasn't come on the scene yet. Um, but there's this picture here that there's a God-man that's coming. Remember, that's been building since Genesis chapter 3, that somebody has to come from from Eve's seed that makes everything right. And, and, and I think we start to see these pictures in the Old Testament, Melchizedek, the one in the fiery furnace, whether they are Jesus or aren't Jesus, there's this picture of a superior, supernatural human being that, that, that is out there. And, and Jesus comes and, and fulfills those, those anticipations and those promises and sets things right and is still setting things right and will ultimately set all things right when he returns. What do, we, what do we do know from this passage? Um, first of all is that God initiates the encounter. God initiates the encounter. It says, The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, across the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. The picture is that the man comes on the scene and initiates this interaction. And again, I don't know I don't know how this plays out. Some some commentators want to speculate and say this is a dream, this doesn't really happen. Some want to say this is this is God and Jacob wrestling in the form of prayer that this isn't a physical thing. Um I think it is physical. I think the 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 injury that Jacob gains from the encounter lends itself to being a physical event. There's certainly some uh some limitation by God. If this is truly God and not just an angel, some want to speculate that it's Esau, which is just really weird. Um, if this is God in supernatural form as a human being, there's some limitations that he seems to place on himself for this to be allowed to go through the night. We used to wrestle and box on my hallway in, um, in college. So we'd have Friday night fights and we'd either box or we'd wrestle and, and they wouldn't last long because if you've ever wrestled or boxed, it takes a lot of a lot out of you really quick. You can't go real long. I mean, you're just fully exerting every muscle in your body, and you and you're just done. Um, most wrestling matches that like collegiately in high school they last like six minutes total. Like when you actually factor in the amount of time that they wrestle and take out all the breaks and the 
and the whatnot. It's like six minutes that they're on the mat, and they're gassed. I mean, they get done with these wrestling matches, and they're just done. So for them to do this through the night, um, it, it's hard to explain that because it doesn't seem like that would be possible. Um, God initiates the encounter, though. So, so what this tells me is that whatever comes out of this encounter was carefully designed by God, that he initiates this. Secondly, lest we think that Jacob is superior to God, God could have touched him at any time in this whole ordeal, right? Like he waits until the breaking of dawn to touch his hip and to severely limit Jacob's ability to carry on in this encounter. And basically you have this picture because as you're wrestling, like you need your hips to be able to turn and to thrust and to, and to throw each other around. When, that, when that's taken from you, basically all Jacob's got left is to hang on for dear life and to beg for a blessing. God could have touched him at any point and put him in this condition. I think God wants Jacob to exhaust every resource that he has and realize his insufficiency in the presence of God. I think ultimately what we do know is that God wants to change his character because that's what seems to happen with the name change, right? Who are you? Again, God's not needing to be informed here. There's a confession here by Jacob based on what his name means. I am verbalizing my character. I'm a trickster. I'm a cheat. I'm a heel grabber. That's what I've been my whole life. And God says, you're no longer going to be that anymore. I'm changing you. You're now going to be called Israel. There's this idea here that he's not allowed to come back into the promised land as Jacob. It's a sanctifying work, I think. Now, I would say God doesn't work like this in the New Testament, right? Like your, your sanctification is not going to uh, involve wrestling with God and him changing your character that way. But it does point to the fact that God works in us and changes us and is not content to leave us in a sinful state where he finds us, right? Jacob and who he was, God is not content to leave him in that state. And he's working on him and he changes his name. And anytime the name change happens in scripture, it signifies a character change, right? Like there's a new intent, a new beginning, a, a, a new intent in that person's life. Abraham gets that name as God says, you're going to be a, 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 a father of a multitude. Not just a great father, but a father of a multitude. Jacob here is going to be different based on this encounter with God. Through this encounter, he's rendered powerless and helpless. God wants to change Jacob's character of self-reliance. It's shown through the name change. Um, it says uh, at the end of it, um, Jacob's hips put out a joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. God's grace that he comes in the night because we know from other Old Testament passages, you can't see God and live at this point. Um, that's veiled in the body of Christ, I think. But even that's communicated to Moses. You can't see me. Jacob most likely can't see who he's even wrestling with at night here. As the sun comes up, God puts an end to this encounter. Jacob says, don't go until you bless me. Um, he said to him, what's your name? He said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? There he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up upon him as he passed. Peniel limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Um, God changes him here. And I think we're going to see that more as, as we get into the rest of Jacob's life. Um, again, it's a difficult passage because we're not given a lot of a lot of good, solid information about what takes place here. So I've tried to give you as much as I'm confidently able to give you um, without speculating too much about what actually takes place here. Uh, from an application standpoint, three points. Um, we, must, we must remember that God is always working around us. Just kind of going back and reiterating the three points that we've already talked about. For our kids, God is always with us. Again, this chapter is themed out with fear and Jacob's fear and how Jacob's handling this fearful circumstance. And um, we see highs and lows, and we certainly see reasons why he shouldn't be fearful. And we can also understand why he is fearful, right? He's created this situation. He's the manipulator. He's the deceiver. He's the one that robbed Esau from Esau's perspective. But we see God with him and God revealing his presence, not keeping it invisible, but making it visible to him. 
And over 2,000 years later, that tells us that we must remember that God is always working around us because we serve the same God. Secondly, we must preach the promises of God to ourselves. Right? And for our parents, I would encourage you to use your prayer times with your family as a way to preach to yourself and to your kids the promises of God. Our kids have to know the promises of God if they're going to rely upon them as they get older. It's our job to teach them the promises of God. And that means us teaching ourselves the promises of God because we're prone to forget them. And we're prone to when the physical raises its head in our week to forget them. We forget the, we forget the spiritual and we focus on the physical. We must preach the promises of God to ourselves. For our kids, we must remember the promises of God to help us. And number three, we must respond to the sanctifying work of God in us. For our kids, we must allow God to work in us. And I use that term loosely because certainly we don't give permission to God to do anything. But sanctification is certainly um, a, a partnership in that Paul says for us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, relying on the one who will do it in us. So for believers, it, it's our responsibility to put ourselves under the authority of God's word so that he can change us into the image of Christ, right? So for our kids... We allow God to work in us. How? By, by being under God's authority in the Bible, by spending time in God's word, by listening to our parents who teach us God's word. For us as adults, it's the same thing. We respond to the sanctifying work of God in us. Uh, he desires to do that work in us. We put ourselves in position to receive and respond to that work. We put ourselves in a church where, the, where God's word is being preached. We put ourselves around other believers that can encourage us and can strengthen us and can hold us accountable. We personally embrace responsibility to be in God's word and to preach his promises to us. So when we face temptation, when we face circumstances that are not desirable, we respond in a holy way where we're trusting in God, trusting in his promises, um, relying upon his presence that is always around us. All right, let's pray together. God, we come to you right now, and Lord, I do want to pause and, and praise you and thank you for your past faithfulness. And God, we come and we confess that you are the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. You're the God of Joseph and Daniel and David. You're the God of Jeremiah, Hosea. All these individuals who've seen your faithfulness. Individuals that we can read about and read about how you were faithful to work in their life and to provide for them. How you faithfully guided them. God, we recognize this morning that we're praying to the same God. That while those individuals have been off of this earth for many years, that you're the same God. And you're working in the same ways. And you have the same plans to bless your children and to to bring this earth into submission to you through the work of Jesus Christ and his, and his reign that is to come. Father, we're thankful that you have grafted us into this family that we're reading about in Genesis, this family that you so carefully took care of, this family that you carefully formed, this nation that you caused to rise up, this nation that you gave the oracles of God to. This nation who, who had the sacrifice system that pointed to Jesus. This nation that received all the prophecies and all the promises. God, we're thankful that while we are not of Jewish descent for, for the majority of us here, that we are counted as the offspring of Abraham because of the faith that you have worked in us. And God, we, we want to leave encouraged this morning realizing that, that if you're the same God as you were then, that we leave today realizing that your camp goes with us. That we are surrounded by spiritual forces that are far more powerful than any fear, any uncertainty, any danger, any temptation that we will face this week. God, help us not to lose sight of the spiritual in the face of the physical. God, I pray that we would faithfully turn to you in every circumstance this week, whether it's to rejoice or whether it's to cling to you for your deliverance. God, I pray that we would respond in a way that brings you glory.
God, we thank you for your promises. I pray that you would constantly remind us. You've promised to forgive us. You've promised to to show favor to us now as your children. You've promised us a family here within this church that can spur us on to good works. You've promised us a future that when Jesus returns, all things will be made right and we get included in your eternal plan. God, I pray that we would preach those promises to ourselves regularly so that we can draw upon them when they are most needed. And God, I pray that we would be faithful to present ourselves to you for sanctification. That in the same way you worked in Jacob's life to to break him of his own self-reliance and to uh, change his character, God, we pray that you would also change our character from the the sinful individuals that you found us in uh, to be uh, into the image of your son. God, I pray that you would uh, encourage us as we leave today, um, that we would be reminded of the words that we've heard from your, from your word, um, that we'd be able to draw upon those things this week as needed. We praise you and thank you for your blessings. We realize that we certainly do not deserve them, um, but we come to you confidently today claiming them Um, because you graciously uh, decided to make those promises to us. And so we certainly accept those humbly. Uh, We praise you and thank you for your provision in our life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.